Hello, everybody. Welcome into Sports Day Insider presented by the Dallas Morning News. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by Evan Grant. Hello, Evan. Oh, I got introduced first. Well, I just thought I'd throw a, throw you a, a, a bone there. Wow. Cool. I, uh, I'm speechless. Hi. Hi, everybody. It's great to be here with you. If only that speechless thing had lasted longer, that would be great. <laughs> Unfortunately, it didn't. So, uh, and so then moving on from Evan, who's still speechless or eating something, I can't tell what either Pistachio. Way. I had a pistachio I had to eat. Oh, well, sure. Go ahead and be eating during the podcast. That's great. Everybody loves that. Uh, and uh, and also joining us back from L.A., our own David Moore. Hello, David. Kevin, have you noticed how when people say they're speechless, they rarely are? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but That's I actually just, was. That just sets up. That just sets up the next 10 minute filibustering session i'm not used to being introduced like somebody actually wants me around (laughs) well yeah i'm just trying to fill in where gina's leaving off uh so (laughs) anyway uh so david you were out there at the super bowl what was it like what's the super bowl like anyway david it's been so long since (laughs) we've been to one (laughs) well it's uh another dallas morning news travel boondoggle (laughs) (laughs) well you know it's a uh this is interesting we were the only uh non-electronic media outlet from Dallas uh, at the Super Bowl. So it is changing as far as, uh, you know, who covers this. It's becoming, uh, uh, you know, if the team, if the team in your market is not in it, and you can correct me on this, Kevin, but I believe the team in this market has not been in it for 26 years, I believe. Yeah, uh, but but math. you're seeing, yeah, it, it's being limited and it's becoming more just the, uh, you know, more people from the networks they are consuming it. it it's you know, it, the the media contingent used to grow every year. Now it is not. Uh, so it's, um, but it, it, as far as the event itself, it was a it was kind of a mix this year of virtual and in person. Um, you know, everything was done virtually uh, Monday through Thursday. And then Friday, you actually had um, group settings where you could talk to the players in person, distance, uh, mask, all of that. But um, so so it's really altered the, the course of the week leading up. But it, to me, this was kind of like where last year, um, what was basically shut down with the pandemic, very, very limited. Um, and you really scrapped, you know, Tampa Bay had to scrap most of the uh public events had had in place for it, really all of them. Um, this year, it was kind of a, it was a transition year. It was kind of going back to what it had been before uh, the pandemic hit and really shut everything down. And so it wasn't as crazy and uh, as overcrowded as it normally is, but you saw signs of it getting back to that. And, and it's going to be interesting to see uh, what it's like uh, next year, whether it returns to, to full form or not. Um, but you know, LA is a great place for it. It's, that was the first time there. In fact, you want to go back and we can, we can let history judge this, or we can talk a little bit about it. The last time the Super Bowl was in the Los Angeles area, Evan, I know you remember who cost, who had the opening coin toss. Um, Yes, I believe it was uh, in L.A. the last time it was there. The Cowboys played, and so the opening coin toss was, of course, um, Shecky Green. O.J. Simpson. (laughs) I know that one. 
OJ Simpson was the opening toss, and Michael Jackson was the halftime performer. OJ yeah, Simpson little, was the opening toss before that first Cowboys Super Bowl win? Yes. Wow. It's been a rough 30 years for that group. <laughs> I was going to say, and the Cowboys, throw the Cowboys in. Let's discuss all three for different reasons, I would say. I'd uh, say the Cowboys are the most egregious of the three. <laughs> you would. Yeah. <laughs> okay, okay, go ahead and make that case a little more here, will you? <laughs> Evan and I turn the floor over to you. Go. No, yeah, I'll, no. I'll let a... you wallow in that one for a minute. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm just kidding. Cowboys fans might say that, but I, I'm not going to say that, no. Not. But that is kind of remarkable when you look back and think about that, isn't it? You know, I remember that halftime show uh, in the – I, frankly, I think I remember that more than I remember everything else uh, about the games. You know, the Cowboys just blew out the Bills in that game, and it was just remarkable. And, and as a matter of fact, I uh, went to the convention center Monday and uh, where Jimmy Johnson was talking to a ballroom full of roofers, uh, as was Herschel Walker. Uh, so that was an interesting uh, to hear those two guys ramble on. Uh, but Jimmy talked about that first Super Bowl and obviously the rest of them as well. And uh, I'll be writing about that this week. But uh, uh, it was interesting to uh, uh, get his perspective on on uh, how he made that work, the, the Jimmy dynamic. But anyway, we'll, we'll talk. I'm about scared to ask what Herschel might have had to say. You know, Herschel told his story. You know, he's Herschel is up now from uh, 2,000 uh, sit-ups a day and and, and uh, pull-ups a day in his story to uh, – is it pull-ups or push-ups? Push-ups. Push-ups. Yeah, right. Push-ups, yeah. He's up to 5,000 now. Sit-ups and the, push-ups. Yeah, yeah 5,000. That's that's the story now. <laughs> so 5,000 push-ups there? Yeah, I don't know how you went from 2005. It was, you know, was, I love the line that Blackie Sherrod had about that, you know, because Herschel would always say that that's what he did. He didn't lift weights. He just did the, the push-ups and sit-ups. And, uh, and Blackie said, has anyone ever actually seen him do these? Uh, and which, listen, I'm, Herschel is a phenomenon. I mean, he looks like he could go out and play a football right now, you know, and, and he says that he still fights and, you know, does it MMA stuff and, and all the rest of it. And I, I'm not challenging him. You know, he challenged me once, and that was enough for me. Uh, and so I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not questioning any of that. I, I just am questioning how you even have time to do five thousand of those. Wouldn't that take all day to do that? I mean, you get up and eat breakfast, and here I go. I'll see y'all at dinner. You know, when I, did Herschel challenge you to a fight? Well, kind of. Yeah, I was in Philadelphia after he got traded. Uh, you know, he. He, he misunderstood the question, which, you know, that seemed to happen to me an awful lot. As a matter of fact, I I, say, that's not an outlier particularly. Yeah. No, that, that was the funny thing about this thing going to is that Jimmy once threw me out of the Dolphins headquarters for questions I was asking there. And then, uh, and Herschel yelled at me uh, in the Eagles locker room. So it's like, uh, I, I don't, how, how could you yell at this face? This is, this is such a friendly, charming, happy guy. How can you yell at this face? I just don't get it. I don't understand. Anyway, all right, so back to the Super Bowl. Back to the Super Bowl, David. Uh, all right. Here's, here's the thing, David, about the, uh, let, let's talk about a couple of things here. Cause this was uh, something that we kind of grinded on last week is that, so Brett Stafford for the second Matt game Stafford. in a row, Matt, Matt Stafford. Matthew Stafford. I want to call him Brett. Brett Stafford from, you know, he played for uh, Texas back <laughs> in the eighties. And I just always sticks in my head. Matthew Stafford, uh, uh, for the second game in a row, brings his team back uh, in the last minutes to win these games. Wins the NFC Championship game in the last, I 
don't know, two minutes, whatever it was. And then he he wins the Super Bowl in the last two minutes. And the MVP is Cooper Cup, you know, the guy he's throwing the footballs to. So, and if it uh, hadn't been Cooper Cup, it would have been Aaron Donald. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? I, I don't have a big problem with that. Aaron Donald was great. He makes the play of the it game there at the very end. Yeah. You know, when is the last time you saw a defensive player make the last play of a game that actually puts the game away and you and you win the game because of that? You know, uh, I, I, you know I was not confident at that point that the, uh, the Rams could keep Cincinnati from going down the field and at least kicking a field goal. A field goal, yeah. 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 All I could think about was the bad hold – you know, that the Rams had after the one of their touchdowns mm-hmm. and, and they missed the extra point. And it's like, yeah, look at that. They could have won this game if not for that. Uh, or that field yeah. goal kicker. Yeah. And, and with the timeout, you just get you get a 15 yard completion there and you have a shot. Absolutely. Into overtime. So, I, so think I, 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 I think I said at the moment that that play was made, that Donald made that play, that um, if you had had to pick one player at the start of the season to make one play with the Super Bowl on the line, Aaron Donald probably would have been the, the the consensus first pick, would he have not? And, I mean, he made that kind of play. It's a great player making a great play to win a championship. And, that that you know, there's some talk that maybe he doesn't come back. And if that's the way you go out, man, that's that's a way to go out. Well, Chris Collinsworth called him the, the best player in the NFL. And, uh, and, that, and I, that might be true. I mean, he's seven times uh, all pro. You know, all pro is better than pro bowl. Uh, yes. that's, it's tougher to be all pro than it is pro bowl. First you look team, at exactly. the, you look at the list of hall of famers and see how many, how many of them were all pro that many times. Not very many. I'd say a third of the guys in the hall of fame, uh, were, uh, all pro at least, you know, five, six, seven times. So, and you know, that's basically the entire time he's been in the NFL. Uh, there've been some very good defensive tackles come in over the last eight years and he's still at the top. Yeah, it's amazing that he, he remains so good. Uh, you know, he, he's not a and he's not a real big guy. You know, uh, and, and when you watch that game, when he wasn't getting a double team, which he was the entire game, why you wouldn't double team him the entire game? I don't know. But when he wasn't getting a double team, it was just like yeah, on one play he just pushed the tackle back yeah. into the quarterback. It was like and then pretty much tackled both of them. You know, it was just unbelievable to watch him play. So he is a he is a tremendous player. So that was that was fun to watch. So, uh, were there any other takeaways from that uh, from that Super Bowl for you, uh, David? Well, you know the thing is, it's just we were talking about a little bit before the podcast started, just about winning a championship and what it does for a franchise. I th- it's going to be interesting. I I think this could be a significant one. Uh, this sounds silly, you know, uh, oh, wow, they won a championship. Now you're calling it significant for the franchise. But, you know, the NFL was out of L.A. for a long time because there are just so many competing entertainment interests. And there's not, while it's a while it's a huge demographic there in terms of population, um, you know, I think they're more than in most cities, an NFL team – just subsisting on pure, you know, rabid NFL fans isn't enough uh, it, because that market is just so ingrained. It's just about, it's about entertainment. You have to, it's viewed as another entertainment property beyond the NFL. And, and this sounds silly, but in some ways sports there is very much a niche proposition unless it can broaden it 
uh, to an entertainment, uh, what the Lakers did, uh, the whole Showtime era, uh, you know, where it was fashionable for the stars to come and be a part of. Um, so now they are relevant. They have thrust themselves on the entertainment scene there. And, and I think they will be talked about in LA. And, you know, th- this has implications for how they built the team too, right? I mean, this is a team that was built to win now. They, they've given away their draft picks. They gave away three draft picks, uh, you know, a, a second and two future first for Matthew Stafford. Uh, they gave away picks for Von Miller, a couple of, you know, twos and threes going forward for Von Miller. They did it before that with Jalen Ramsey. You know, it's not just their philosophy on how to build a team, but there, I think, is a philosophy on how we are relevant in the market. And to do that in L.A., they've determined you have to have star power. Uh, and, you know, again, it, it's funny because I think Dallas would exist very well in that market because it doesn't matter necessarily whether they win or lose. It's just why they're always, you know, you want people to always be talking about you. It's and, a soap opera. Yeah. And uh, the Rams now, um, people are going to be talking about them. So I, I think it was very significant for a team in what is considered a soft football market to have a championship this soon in their return. Uh, and again, that that's the, the stadium they have is spectacular. It, it is the standard in the NFL or, or I would say in us sports right now. Yeah. I love that stadium. It's, it's, you know, it looks like something the aliens left behind. It, it is really cool when you're in it. You would think, it looks really cool from the outside. And then when you're in it, you would think, oh, but isn't that all a, an obstruction, though? Because it has that kind of thin veil over yeah. the top of it. But it's not, because it's translucent, it's really cool. And so it wards off the elements and it allows you to enjoy the great, you know, Southern California weather as well. So, yeah, it's very cool. You know, the, the one thing I would say, and, and, I, and, I, and I, I'm very happy for Matthew Stafford, obviously a Highland Park product, went in the Super Bowl. It was really great. Uh, and I think he got a little bit of that monkey off his back about all those years in Detroit, which clearly weren't all his fault. Um, but um, I, I would say that of the two quarterbacks, I think by the definition you just gave, Joe Burrow would be more of the L.A. kind of quarterback than Matthew is. Because Matthew's a very low-key guy, very sure. low ego, whereas what is what is everybody talking about with Joe Burrow besides the play? It's It's the bling, right? It's the, mm-hmm. it's the way he dresses. It's the way he acts. It's the you way know, he carries himself. Way yeah, he carries everything. himself. Yeah, that was it. He's a he's a star. There's no question about that. He's going to be a big star in the league. I thought, you know, it, I thought in that game he he showed a couple of times a, a little bit of of being a little too young and not quite grasping the situation. But he was also sacked what seven times? Seven times. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is a is that a I would think that was a Super Bowl record. I think or at least it tied. Tied when Staubach was was sacked yeah. seven times. So I mean, you know, there was a games in these playoffs where he was sacked nine times and seven and seven. times. Yeah. Which and, and still have his team in and the still game. Still right both there times. and have a shot to win. And one one the other one, uh Tennessee, I think, and then you know, Tennessee, had, had a shot yeah. there. Yeah, uh, pretty pretty uh, remarkable. You know, Matthew Stafford, I would say uh he he will still always be second to LA fans, even though he won. I think Justin Herbert. I, oh, I think yeah. most people in LA would say he's the best quarterback in, in LA, just aesthetically how he looks. And and you know, I, I think this is I think what Stafford did was I think in what he did in a lot of ways was harder than what Tom Brady did going to Tampa Bay last year. Because look, Tom Brady took six Super Bowl championships with him to Tampa Bay. Um 
that defense, you know, I mean, that that was a good team in place, but he had he had the championship resume and people bought in on what he could do. And it wasn't surprising him coming in and winning another title. Now you can talk about, you know, a lot of things y'all were talking, oh, he can't do it at that age. Well, he'd already shown he could do it at that age. You know, I mean, he had already kind of cleared every hurdle on why he shouldn't do it. So it is is Tom Brady going to a team as the final piece to lead them to a title startling? Not really when you look back on it. In some ways, you should expect it. But what L.A. did was they took the same template. They felt just like Tampa Bay the year before them. We're just a quarterback away. If we get the right quarterback in here, we can win it all. And they identified Matthew Stafford, a guy who in 12 seasons in Detroit was a very good quarterback, but never won a postseason game. Um, And since he had been the number one pick in the draft, there had been other number one picks at quarterback come in behind him that you got much more excited about and kind of knocked him down the road. You know, again, I, it's easy for Russ to, to develop pretty quickly in Detroit. And I think it did on Matthew Stafford and how he's viewed around the league. And um, so for, for me, David, I don't know that you intended to be quite that hyperbolic, but that was pretty good. That was pretty Thanks, good. Thanks buddy. Rust in Detroit. Yeah, the Rust Belt, you know. I kind of stumbled into that. Yeah. Uh, But to me, that's much more unlikely on so many fronts than what, uh, you know, Tom Brady did. And and let's take other sports as well. How often in any sport, it it happens in in, in basketball, baseball, hockey's a little different, but but every sport, football is like, you identify one player, we get that one player, we're going to win a championship this year. How often does that happen? And for it to happen with the guy who has never won a postseason game and is in his 13th year in the NFL, I think is one of the more unlikely uh, stories of, of working out and identifying a guy who had, who had been good throughout his career. But uh, nothing, he had fallen from elite status. I don't think anyone put Matthew Stafford in elite status. Uh, and to come in and do that, uh, I thought in a lot of ways, uh, in, in many objective ways, you can look at it was really more impressive than what Tom Brady did last year with Tampa Bay. Plus, he came back and actually executed the game-winning drive late, which, you know, Kevin, you pointed out he did that in the NFC Championship game. He also did it against Tampa Bay to eliminate them. He brought them back on a game. In fact, Matthew Stafford in his career has 46 fourth-quarter game-winning drives. That's pretty impressive. Uh, you know, the, the, the thing I want to, uh, kind of zero in on a little bit now is that, uh, the, the way that, uh, that, that's, that the Rams were to build this team and do this, this really kind of says, okay, this is a stamp of approval, right? I mean, you, you won the championship, you did it this way. It was very radical what you did, but you won it all. Uh, and so that's good. Uh, we'll see what they can do going forward. I mean, Matthew's older, but he's, we've seen quarterbacks play a long time. He certainly seems to be in good shape. He's not lost anything on his arm speed. He's the same kind of quarterback he's always been and able to do it. We saw the, the no look pass that everybody's, uh, uh, that's on, that's kind of gone viral now on that drive. He threw to Cooper cup where he was looking basically, I guess, 45 degree angle and threw a 90 degree angle pass. Uh, so, he can still do all those kind of things. My my oldest son always is always frustrated with the, all the hype about Patrick Mahomes. Look at all the 
sidearm, the no-look pass, and he says, you know, Matthew Stafford's been doing that his whole career, you know, but just nobody knows because he's in Detroit. Yeah. Uh, so uh, they, they got all that done. Maybe they can keep winning. Maybe they can't. How, what does that mean to a franchise, though, if you win a championship and – what is the grace period for you after that? Can you ride that for, for two years? Can you ride it for three, four? I mean, in this market, the last champion was the Dallas Mavericks, and we gave them grace, at least I did, uh, for a long time, eight or nine years after that, before I finally said, that's ah, enough of Rick Carlisle. Yeah, I, I, think, I think it's getting shorter. I think society's attention span is getting shorter anyway. Uh, for a lot of different reasons. So I, I don't think it's going to buy you the goodwill for as long. And um, to, to me, you just kind of settle into the, the worst place to be is indifference, right? Um, you, you, want, you want to engage emotionally with your sports team. You want to be either, um, you know, frustrated with them or, or excited by them. And the moment you st- the moment you're not either, when you enter that indifference or that ennui, uh, then you have really, you know, difficulty uh, selling tickets and marketing. So um, I, I think it's pretty quick. And I think it's how you defend a title, too. You know, Kevin, you mentioned the, the Mavericks. Well, the Mavericks didn't even give that championship team a chance to repeat. Now, would they have repeat repeated? I think it's highly unlikely. But when you spend all year talking about what a rare group and how important chemistry is and, and, you know, this guy isn't the best player, but the chemistry and how they interact with each other makes this team stronger and then go trade all these guys away the next year without even giving them a chance to defend and just go, well, but individually we got a player back who, who has more individual skill. Well, you just, you know, you just dismissed in some ways what the whole championship season was about. And, yeah, uh, and I, I don't think that set well with some some Mavericks fans, but but yeah, uh, that that title was so unlikely, and Dirk was such a beloved sports figure. I think it bought them a lot of time. Um, I think that is rare. I, I think I think you have a little bit more time in certain basketball, baseball, and hockey markets because. Some of those are in smaller cities and in some cases are, are the only sports team there uh, or are one of two sports teams there. But in major markets, uh, I think a championship buys you very little time. I, you I, know, I, I, I want to take a different – Well, I want to ask you something first, Evan. I'm going to ask – let me make one comment, then I'm going to ask you a question. Uh, so sit down and be quiet. Um, <laughs> is that uh, – you know, Donnie Nelson once told me when I asked him about – the, the whole this like why do you, why do you let Tyson Chandler go? Tyson Chandler was the linchpin on all this, and and the first thing he said to me was, "Listen, when we signed Tyson Chandler, were you excited about that?" I said, "No," uh, and, and nobody was because because Chandler hadn't been able to play. He was he was at at that time pretty much the Kristaps Porzingis of the NBA. He, he hadn't fulfilled his promise. He he was having trouble staying on the floor. He comes to the Mavericks and he's just great. You know, he was exactly what they needed him to be. He said, that's the number one thing. We don't think he can do that again. Secondly, I think we caught lightning in a bottle. And that was the term he used for it. Uh, and so I think in some ways it, it it kept the Mavericks fans from enjoying it as much as they could have to, to see that happen. I think if they at least and, – and frankly, I just don't know why you wouldn't have gone with it anyway. Why not just roll with that? Yeah, obviously you're you're a little hamstrung on what you can do here. Why not, why not just roll with it and try? You know, and, and the fans would have been good with that. 
I think what happened was after Chandler was gone, I think it subtracted somewhat from the enjoyment factor for the map for mass fans. It's like, why didn't you at least try to make this work? What, what the heck, you know, because you know, whether they're realistic or not, fans are nostalgic for that. This one just worked. Let's try it again. And I don't think I, I and I think they, they were proven wrong. Tyson Chandler had a really nice career uh, after that. Uh, and I think that, I'm not saying they would have gone back and won another title. Charles Barkley has said that was one of the greatest accomplishments in NBA history for that team to win a title with one superstar. Uh, so uh, that, yes, that could have been something like that, but it wasn't. Now, Evan, here what I, here's what I want to ask you. So the Rangers go to back-to-back World Series and don't win either one, uh, but they're right there on the doorstep. How much grace do you think that earned the Rangers and if they had won – one of those World Series, how much difference would it have made? I, I, I mean, I, in some regards, I think it earned John Daniels a, a decade of grace, um, if you if you want to say it that way. I, the guy's been in his it has run baseball operations now for seventeen years. There, Rangers haven't been to a World Series in, in a decade. They haven't been. They've had five consecutive losing seasons, um, and yet he's still the guy who took this team as far as it's ever been. Um, and in, in some regards and in, in terms of ownership, he's still trusted. Now I, I, I've always maintained that the, the grace period on executives is shorter than it is with anything else. Nobody tunes in to watch the executives. So, um, what he does behind the scenes, a lot of fans don't appreciate, they don't appreciate the fact that the team hasn't won. I mean, first, first and foremost, that that's what becomes the number one issue is when are you going to win? What, what I do think has happened is, listen, the overall, the, overall, the, the overall situation in all of pro sports now is championships are hard to win. They're harder than they've ever been to win. The leagues are larger. The playoffs are larger. It's harder to win championships. And so I think championships should be more appreciated. But I also think in the immediacy of the society in which we live in, the minute a, some, a team hosts, hoists a championship trophy, we're immediately looking for, okay, what's the uh, the minute Georgia hoisted the championship trophy this year, we're looking for the next morning the uh, way too early 2022 poll and who's going to be favorites. Um, I think in certain situations, look, Dirk's, Dirk's championship, I don't want to talk about grace periods. What I think it did is it validated the whole Dirk Nowitzki era. Um, I think that the that the Luka thing that we keep talking about is if this team doesn't win a championship, it's wasted Luka. If it's not a dynasty, it's not a dynasty. But if it doesn't win a championship with Luka, has it wasted Luka? And I think what the Rams did is they put all those pieces together. They won a championship. We can sit here and we can break it down however we want to in terms of what it means for the franchise long term, uh, what it means in terms of dynasties. But I think that ultimately it just it 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 for me it's like the Aaron Donald era. You validated the Aaron Donald era in LA. You made him a champion. You brought him in as a championship caliber player. He won a championship there. Storybook closes. Um, that's, that's the way I tend to look at these things. Well, let's, uh, so let's, that's, we're going to segue now from that segment about championships into the, since we're talking about the Mavericks and into that, 
David, I was very struck by something that Jason Kidd said the other day after the the big trade, uh, which in which of course the Mavericks traded Kristaps Porzingis to the Washington Wizards uh, for you know some uh, a couple of ball bags and a uh, oh I'm just kidding Spencer Dinwiddie and Davis Bertans, uh, you know, and, and they even threw in a second round draft pick for the deal, so they still owe the Knicks a first round pick for KP. And now they've thrown a second round pick to the wizards. The whole East coast is benefiting <laughs> from these, the Mavericks trades uh, in, on this, uh, in this situation. Uh, but one of the things that Jason Kidd said was that obviously they were counting on KP to be the second star. Uh, Cause you had to have a second star and they thought they'd gotten one uh, when they made that deal. Uh, I thought they'd gotten one when they made that deal. Uh, and so when they, uh, now that they don't have that, uh, you know, kid was asked, well, so who's it going to be? He goes, well, I don't know if it's going to be somebody from this club. I don't know if we're going to get somebody else or not. He said, but you know, we've, we've done it before basically uh, with the, with the one superstar approach and, and we'll see. And it's like, yeah, yeah. You played on that team with, uh, with Dirk Nowitzki. He was the superstar that he was talking about uh, when they won the title in 2011. I, you know, we just talked about how hard that was for that team to win it all and what a great job that they did doing that. And all the dominoes have to fall just right to get that to happen. I do think that uh, in many ways, Luka Doncic is a better player than Dirk Nowitzki was. Uh, I think he's a more complete player um, and he's and he's got the ball in his hands all the time. And that to me is always the kind of optimal situation. If a guy's got the ball in, all his, in his hands all the time and he's a great player, then that's even better. You know, you don't have to, he doesn't have to create, he can create uh, for himself and for others. Um, but I, I don't, you know, in that trade, and, and I gave them an F, you know, when I ranked that, I, I couldn't believe I got pushback from fans here. It's like, like you, you guys are soft. Come on, let's go. Give them an F for this. <laughs> what what did we see? They're, they're not better in the short term because of this trade. Uh, I don't believe they're going to be better in the long term because this trade for, because, you know, people will want to say, well, they've got some financial relief now. Now they have some more latitude because these two guys, these were two bad contracts that the Wizards gave up. That's one of the reasons why they wanted to get rid of these guys, because to make that trade work out, they got about thirty five million dollars invested in these two guys over the next two or three years. So it's not like they're going to be able to after this year say, OK, those contracts are gone and now we can go out and get us a big superstar to pair up with Luca because they can't do that. They're going to be essentially the same team that they are right now for the next two years. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I think it is a little easier to move on from two sp- split the difference, right? I, I think yeah. it's, it's more difficult to move on from you one mega bad contract I think that is harder to do and gain flexibility than when you basically cut it in half and have two smaller bad contracts you can move on from. You can move on from one bad contract in one deal. You know, I I do think it, this sounds silly, but the way the NFL, the NBA is constructed, it, some of it is moving on from bad contracts and your ability to do it. And they can move on from these two bad contracts a little easier than they can uh, moving on from, from uh, Chris tops. Um, but, you know, I, to, to me, the Porzingis deal was still one worth making when you look at what they gave up, the player they gave up. Um, you You're know, talking Dennis about the Smith. first deal. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, you roll the dice there. Uh, I, I do think it's very telling that that Jason Kidd and and Nico, you know, had Harrison. seen enough. Harrison had seen enough in half a season to know that they wanted to move on from Porzingis. When what were they saying initially that they were committed to making this work right? And for for them to move on at this stage to me indicated that they felt uh, this guy's already hit his ceiling. Uh, physically, he's not going to be able to hold up. Our staff is, has enough medical information now to believe this is going to continue to happen. And for what we're paying, he'll never be the second best player because he just won't be on the court that often. All he will do will impact our ability to build a team around Luca. So I think this was an acknowledgement that, um, look, the two players they got, together I don't think are better than Persingas. Um but it was an acknowledgement okay the longer we hold on to him the more it's going to delay getting a guy next to uh, Luca that makes sense um, and look you know they're, they're red flags with both of the guys they got I mean Bertrand's is Bertans is really his play has really declined over the last two years significantly um, and Dinwiddie, you know, there, there are questions about him in the locker room. Now, he can he can create, and you have another ball handler, which I think this team needs. Uh, you know, Bertrands can give be a bit of that shooting element that, that they need as well. But, um, yeah, this is just about moving on. Uh, you're not better in the short term, uh, and it's about trying to figure out from this offseason on what are you going to do. And stop me if you've heard this before about the Mavericks in recent years. It's all been pointed toward what you do in the postseason about getting ready for next year. Um, they they need to get this together sooner rather than later because if they don't, if they don't put this around, if they don't put a good team around Luca pretty soon, why would Luca stay? This was a step backward to step forward. I mean, it's that yeah. simple. So one step oh. back for two, yeah. It, it's an acknowledgement that the that the experiment in Porzingis, while it was bold and like every time you look at him, you say, "My God, you've got that athlete on your roster. You should have a really strong core." It's an acknowledgement that, like just like you said, David, he couldn't stay healthy. Um, there wasn't a different dynamic with the team, um, and and I feel like the the other thing I wanted to say in regard to championships was once you've won a championship, it makes it easier to move on rather than having to try and hang on an extra year. And in this situation, it's better to still get rid of a guy early and acknowledge that that window of that championship did not take place than it is to hang on past the point where he'd have any value, where he diminished the ability for you to get anything in return or exchange money in the way that you need to. So um, I I think it's got to be called what it is, which is, you know, we're not gonna we're we're not gonna win with Kristaps Porzingis, and we're gonna have to look at the next step. I, I see, but here's my problem with all of that: you don't know that you're not gonna win with Kristaps Porzingis because when he when he plays and plays well, he's still a very effective player. I mean, the guy averaged 20 points a game and eight rebounds, almost nine rebounds a game uh, over his Mavericks career. So for all the you know the slings and arrows he suffered, uh, and and rightfully so, a lot because he couldn't stay on the floor. When he played, he was still really good. And, and and what if he goes to the Wizards and plays the rest of the season and plays really well? Because his ceiling is a lot higher 
than the two guys that the Mavericks got in return. I mean, he, Kevin, you he haven't was, seen enough of Chris Stapps Porzingis here to, to to determine that that on health alone, this guy wasn't going to hold up. You only need him to play. You only need him to play really well in the playoffs and in the bubble. When he was in the bubble, he played magnificently. He was terrific there. And say so that's to me what you're saying is right now we have already pulled the plug on our postseason because yeah, I think you, I mean I think that is the tacit acknowledgement that they've made. See, and that that's my problem with this is that really, I mean, I don't have, listen. I don't have a problem with trading KP. You know, I, I've said all along I didn't think they could trade him because of the contract. You know, if you want to trade him, that's fine. It's just that what did you get in return? Is there not somebody else that you could not have dumped this on that would give you an expiring contract? I mean, my gosh, you you've got these guys now for the next two or three years, and then like David said, you can. You can maybe you can roll one of them into a trade, you know, with somebody probably Dinwiddie because nobody's going to take Bertans, you know. So uh, I I don't uh, I don't see that you've done really anything other than we just pushed this guy off the train. That that's basically what 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 you did here. You got yourself a little bit of latitude. You've canned this season. You've said that, that we're not going to go anywhere uh, because I don't believe they can. I think it's you know as as David had talked about before in previous weeks on the podcast when you make a mid-season trade that very rarely works out and and that's when you're adding on adding guys who are really significant players these are not significant players uh so what, but I mean, what was your okay. best what was your best hope for this team with Porzingis for this year uh my, my best hope was that he would be uh, he would put listen he has he has missed he has missed time this year, but has not been for the same way he'd missed time before. He was in better shape this year. He was stronger this year. Uh, when he was out, you know, some of that was a little bit of, of bad luck. And I think that it's possible that he could have come back this season uh, and they and played well into these playoffs. I would have just at least given this year a shot. You, I don't understand the timing of this deal. You know, you, you why not try to do this after the season? You've gotten this far. It's almost it, what it felt like was, oh, this is a bad guy. We just got to get rid of him. And in, when, in fact, that was not the case. He's not a bad guy. He was very popular on the team. Teammates liked him. You know, uh, so it, it just felt like, oh, my gosh, somebody said they're going to give us something for him. OK, we'll take it. You know, I, it, it felt like a panic move to me. And I know that this was not a move that Cuban wanted to do. You know, in December, Cuban was talking about how, are you crazy? I mean, I, I realize that some of that is post, can be posturing. You know, you don't want to give up uh, the idea that you don't want to trade this guy. I do believe that Cuban thought, you know, it's, it's always hard for him to admit to making a mistake. Unlike me, I'm the kind of guy, when I make a mistake, <laughs> I'm gracious about it. I screw that up. I'm sorry. You know, but Cuban hates to admit when he makes what a I've mistake. Well, what I've learned is that Cuban has never made a mistake. You have. <laughs> so I think so that's what I've learned okay. is that in dealing with professional sports owners in general, A, it's very hard for them to, be, to admit that they make it a mistake, or B, as David said, they never have made a mistake. <laughs> I, I think that is the, um, that's the privilege <laughs> that goes along with being a millionaire, with being Montgomery Burns. A billionaire, actually. Uh, is not. Very quickly on Porzingis, I, I think this is, you know, the the stance you articulated, and, and and Evan is kind of on the other end of it. That's where every franchise and every fan is, and will always be with Porzingis. Like Kevin, you're looking at Porzingis and going, "Look, I know he misses a lot of time, but with that talent, you need to keep him there because he's the guy who can push you over the top in the postseason." 
And Evan and the other side will say, no, what you're seeing is you could lose him at the key moment. You could build and be the best team in the league, and then suddenly you lose him and he's out for the playoffs, and then where are you? And that's, I think when you're living the existence of that daily, like the Mavericks organization was, I think they probably tended to look at it from that end of the spectrum going, how can we get continuity here? How can we really bring this team together uh, with him being clearly the second best player? As we talked about before, I think if Porzingis was the third best player, he would still be on this team because then he's a luxury. Mm-hmm. But if you're the second best player has to be a necessity. And in and the time and he had be been second, here, he had not established himself as a necessity. And you know? to be the second best player on a team, whether it's the NBA, the NFL, Major League Baseball, what is it beyond the tools, the things that people talk about and might value even more are consistency, durability, reliability. And yes. uh, listen, I, I, I'm still not sure I get the Chris Stapps Porzingis trade, but that's my theory on where the Mavs are coming from, that they just did not think he was capable of being a, a, uh, a real pillar of a championship uh, of a championship. Well, Kevin, to your point, I believe it had to be pretty glaring to them behind the scenes for them to pull the trigger during this season when sure. they hadn't been, when this new group hadn't been with them for an entire season. I, I think they must have seen something or gathered enough over this to where they shifted what their stance was going in of like, hey, let's let's see if we can make it work this season. For whatever reason, they determined they could not make it work going forward. Well, clearly they're wrong. So uh, we'll, we'll go from there. Uh, you know, yeah. I remember just, another former Dallas Morning News columnist who was very upset when uh, the Mavs got rid of a big man because um, he was sure that that big man was going to lead them to a championship too. Um, and it didn't work out well in the NBA for Sean Bradley. Bless his heart. I hope that I hope he has a good recovery. But. Uh, Randy Galloway was not a real big proponent of the Mavericks getting rid of, of Sean Bradley at that point in time. I don't I don't remember that. The one I remember with Randy was when he said when Rick Sud told him that he would take uh if they had the chance they would take Melvin Turpin over Michael Jordan. Uh that that was the one I remember. He wrote, Randy actually wrote that. Uh my gosh, I'd hate to have need that. A center. My, I hate to have that one in my obituary. Uh all right. Um so now we're going to move on uh, from our Mavericks segment when uh, clearly I was right, everybody else was wrong, uh, and we're going to go on to uh, talk about the Rangers uh, and about baseball. Well, actually, baseball in general. And, and Evan's going to tell us what he thinks uh, baseball is doing because none of the rest of us can figure it out. Uh, neither can I, Kevin. I mean, I uh, listen. I should be I should be in spring training right now in Arizona. Um, and pitchers and catchers should be reporting, and that's all. That's all great. But with each continuing day and every new report that comes out, whether it's the collective bargaining agreements or other litigation that is on the table, uh, it certainly seems to me like Major League Baseball wants, among other things, that it wants to control costs of. It wants to control or eliminate the costs of operating minor league baseball. It's clear to me that ownership and the commissioner's office feel that the minor league system is inefficient and it may well be. I mean, in large part, you, you construct 28 man rosters 
basically because you have four or five legitimate prospects that need to play every day. And the rest of a roster is usually just an organizational guy. Every once in a while, a guy kind of kind of stands out. Is it the most efficient way? No, but, you know, what MLB is doing right now with the suggestion uh, yesterday that was reported that um, in addition to having already cut 40 minor league teams from all of Major League Baseball. Now MLB would like to have the ability to cut minor league player reserve pools from 180 to 150, which is essentially reducing by another team, and potentially going below 150 players. Um, beyond that, in a separate lawsuit, an arg- a lawyer for Major League Baseball argued last week that Major League Baseball should not have to play, pay minor league players during spring training, arguing that the benefits and the um, the resources available to the players, uh, if the players were to pay for that, it would cost them a pretty penny out of pocket. Um, that may be what Major League Baseball thought when it first established the minor league system under Branch Rickey. Uh, but times have clearly changed. Players invest in an awful lot of money just to get themselves in shape for spring training. It is a year-round endeavor that players take on on their own without salary outside of the season. And so the idea that there's not even a, a living stipend uh, of cash for minor league players is ridiculous. I'll point out that in 2020, when Major League Baseball shut down spring training, Shinsu Chu thought it significantly enough that he sent $1,000 checks to each of the Rangers minor league players, cost him $190,000. So to send everybody a $1,000 check basically to cover some living expenses beyond rent and, and food, which is, is supplied by the club, costs you under $200,000. On the idea of getting rid of minor league teams, I'm not so sure that I don't disagree with Major League Baseball on that on that front. I feel like College baseball has so improved its caliber of play and that, quite frankly, um, the colleges, and I know this is going to come across as strange, but colleges aren't quite as exploitive <laughs> uh, in terms of how they treat athletes as, as Major League Baseball is. I know that's, that sounds very strange, but you go to, you go to a Division I school, you get the opportunity, you've got better living conditions than you'd usually do in the, minor, in the lower levels of the minor leagues. You've got better training condition tables than you do at the lower levels of the minor league. You've got better facilities than you do at the lower levels of the minor leagues. With NIL, you've got the ability probably to make a little bit more money than you do at the minor league level. And on top of all that, guess what? You can actually get a legitimate education if you want for a couple of years. It's amazing. Amazing what they do with this stuff. So if Major League Baseball would like for the NCAA or whatever college baseball is going to become, to basically take over the lower levels of development for their systems, that's great. Um, I And I, I don't have an issue with that. But let's be transparent about it and let's say, okay, here's what we'll do to offset the costs, since I believe college programs are limited to 11.7 full scholarships, let's come up with some ways that we can help direct some money to improve the scholarship pool for Division I programs so that more of these kids can go to college for the first two years rather than have the whole headache of having to care for 18- and 19-year-old kids who probably shouldn't be living on their own in, some, in a lot of situations. Um, and, and, and 
who shouldn't be paid apprenticeship wages when they're basically being asked to work full time. Are you finished? Yes. Okay. Thank you very much. And thanks for that. Thanks for yelling into your microphone at that one point too. Now that was very good, Evan. That was a, a, a very nice synopsis of the entire situation. We appreciate that. Um, yeah. I just want to say about, you know, the, the whole college baseball question, you know, uh, I covered college baseball back in the eighties, you know, there's no comparison now between what college baseball is now and what it was then, you know, you'd have coaches just abusing pitchers, you know, in, in the college world series, you, we, we wrote about that in the, in the eighties about uh, running guys out there on one, one day off, you know, they started a game and now two days later, and these are guys who are, are going to be high draft picks and you're pitching them two days later. It's just re- ridiculous back then what was happening. That's not the case so much anymore. You do. Uh, and, and plus you just have so many better things. We, we talked about this, I believe before, uh, a, a family I know very well, uh, their son went to, uh, Hillcrest with, and he was actually predated, uh, my kids being at Hillcrest, but we know the family, the Pragers, Brian Prager, who was, who would have been a, a, probably a first round draft pick if he had taken the money that was, uh, uh, teams were dangling in front of him. He was a very smart kid of Victorian. He, he decided he wanted to go to Texas A&M. And as his dad, Howard, who played in the minor leagues in the Astros system and Brave system and was a good player himself, was an all-state baseball player at WT White, told me, he said, you know, and the thing is, they fly to all their games, you know, in the SEC. They don't, they don't take buses. Uh, and you get to be on campus, and there's girls, you know, and, and it's just a, it's a great life. I don't know why anybody – it was that kind of prospect, and you're a smart kid, and you want to get a degree. He already has 39 hours toward his degree when he graduated from high school. Look, there's why would you want to do that in, instead of uh, going to uh, play pro pro baseball? There's always a segment of kids, and I don't want to take anything for granted, but there's always a segment of kids that need the legitimate bonus money that would come with a first, second, or third round type selection. Um, they need that nest egg to help out their families in a lot of situations. And, and for them, you know, maybe going into the minor leagues is the better option. But all things being equal, if you can go to if you can go to college and you can get the facilities that are now available at the college level. Listen, when I went to Mississippi and saw Vanderbilt, Mississippi last year, the, 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 it, and, and two years before that, when I went to go see South Carolina and Columbia, there is no comparison between what I've seen at the lower levels of the minor leagues. There might not be a comparison in terms of Frisco's ballpark. To those to those ballparks at, at, at in the SEC, so um, plus the crowds and, they get at those games. And besides, forget the SEC for a minute. I'm going to go down to Dallas Baptist in a half an hour and talk to Dan Hefner. And I mean, you've got a beautiful place down there, you know, right here in in, in Dallas, where there's a great program, a small campus um, that's got a great tradition of of producing guys. Um, so there's there's lots of opportunities to for, for kids to go to college and, and pursue both baseball and some degree of education. And with NIL, I think it can be a game changer for a lot of guys that you will have more and more players saying, wait a minute, I can get a little bit of money here. I can still get to my point where I will get a bigger bonus coming out and I'll be better prepared. And I won't have to go, you know, live in Pulaski, uh, Virginia in, you know, in the foothills of the Appalachians with four guys in a, in a one bedroom apartment. So, um, it's, a it's a lot to think about for major league baseball. And 
All I'm asking is, and I know this is a lot where Major League Baseball is concerned, but let's just have some transparency. If you've got a plan that you'd like to enact, let's throw it, let's, let's put it out there and let's explain it and stop trying to just save money for the owners, for the owners to not reinvest into the game. The owners need to take some stewardship of the game for the next generation. I know they want all their profits and they want as much money as possible, but there's still the idea that you are a steward of a local institution and you need to help grow the industry. Okay, I think that's going to do it for us. Uh, all those people who are getting this podcast in Pulaski, we apologize for Evan's slight of your fine uh, burg there. We, we sure it's a it's a great place to live, and we don't want to act like uh, it wasn't. But anyway, um, uh, we we missed Callie Kaplan this week. Uh, she couldn't be on the podcast with us. She hopes to be back next week. We certainly will hope that's the, the case. We'll have other things to talk about. Maybe uh, maybe MLB is making some progress. Probably not. Um, we will, I'm sure, try to come up with some Cowboys talk. Right, David? Sure. <laughs> Thanks, David. There's Thanks always for that something reason. to talk about with the Cowboys. <laughs> yes, there is always. So that's why you, you're right when you said this Cowboys team should be in L.A. This Cowboys team is a soap opera. It should be in LA. It would be a. It would be on the front page every day in, in, in uh, Los Angeles. So that's going to do it for us. Come back and see us next time. It's great to have you. Thanks. Tell your friends. Bye.